0: Dear friends in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father, and our Lord and Savior Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. The text for our consideration is actually that entire gospel reading, but I'm going to read for you just the first verse again, or verse 17. Mark 10, 17. And as Jesus was setting out on His journey, a man ran up and knelt before Him and asked Him, Good Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is our text. Please pray with Him. Lord, the question is always on a human mind. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get there? How good must I be? How much obedience is necessary? What what can I do to make sure I get there? Who can be saved? These questions, Lord, are the questions of your sheep. And you know the answer that we need to hear. So today, Lord, let the words of my mouth, the thoughts of our hearts, the meditations of our being, answer those questions in the way that you would have them answered. All this I pray through Jesus, who is our Lord, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. We have heard one of the most vivid episodes in all of Scripture, so say the commentaries. The story of the rich young man in Mark, or if you will, the rich young ruler as he is called in Matthew and Luke. This story is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means same vision sin optics from the Greek all the Gospels feature this story because there is a key question here what must I do to inherit eternal life a key question I was on my trip down to Oregon the last couple of days I had a discussion with my cousin bill bill is an elder in a Lutheran church down there actually an elder a St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Sherwood, Oregon. They, there's an argument between these two churches in Oregon, St. Paul's at Sherwood and St. Peter's at Cornelius, as to which one is the oldest Lutheran Church in the west, west of the Rocky Mountains. Because And they're all related. I mean, these are the two churches that the, our family has re, relations there too. So it's kind of a friendly argument, but it gets a little hot sometimes. But anyway, my cousin Bill's an elder there. And he told me, and we were talking about various things, and he told me an old retired pastor is a member of his congregation. This pastor still does visitations at the age of 90. He goes and visits shut-ins and the elderly and takes communion to them and things like that. And he, too often, he says, is ministered to guys that are on the edge of their deathbed And he's found this very, very frustrating in his ministry, according to Bill. Because old Lutherans will ask him, Have I done enough? Am I good enough to be saved? Every Lutheran should know better than to ask that question. For crying out loud. Salvation comes not if you are good enough. And this narrative of the rich young man, deeply misunderstood feeds this perception that it's somehow about how good we are. It's a mistake to hear the passage that way, but that's the way the passage is taught. There's an ongoing argument among the people that are going to be preaching on this this week. It's really about the importance of being behind your wealth and getting on with this, that, and the other thing. How much good you can do in the world. That's the way the passage is taught. And the people teaching that way still have a veil over their face and their ears are plugged to hear the word of god the way it's actually meant in this passage so let's look at this passage much more closely this morning and actually see if we can understand what jesus is really saying here it has nothing to do about wealth a rich young man runs up breathlessly and throws himself, the language is vivid, and the Greek throws himself in front of Jesus and said, good rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's obviously very serious. I want to get to heaven. And Jesus' first response is, why do you call me good? Oops. No one is good but God alone. No one is good but God is. He's trying to get the man to pause and think for a second. If no man is good, but God is, then maybe salvation needs to come from God, but not from anything a no good man can do. Think about it. Jesus continues, trying to slow him down. His answer, if you're going to ask me that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. And he cites the second table stuff. The ones that are actually all about life here and now. He doesn't even go near the first table commandments, which is about being worthy before God. He said, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lies. Honor your parents. The commandments a lot of people can keep in a very shallow way. Because the commandments are about thoughts, words, and deeds. But when you think about it, Stan and I did a little exercise in this about temple repair years ago. And I kept laying a commandment for front of Stan, and he would say, yeah, I'm pretty good. But then he would say, but you know, so-and-so has a nicer pickup than I do. Thou shalt not covet. Stan eventually was laying on the floor. Yeah, do you remember that, Stan? Yeah, it's a real good example of the Ten Commandments at work. If you stop and think about them, you know you fall short. And Jesus doesn't even go near the short, the really hard commandments, or the ones that say, No other God, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and keep the Sabbath. He doesn't even mention those. And the rich young man now, still breathlessly, not thinking, forges on all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus, if he was going to be truthful, could have just said, A liar. No. But Jesus is kind. And I think it's the most telling line in the whole story. And it's found only here in Mark. Because the other two Gospels will tell this story without this particular line. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked at him and he loved him. You know, it's that look of, really? How can I get through to this guy? Really? You think you've kept the law? Okay, son, let's look a little deeper. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. You see, Jesus could do that with each and every one of us. If we ran up to Him and said, well, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm eligible to get to heaven, I hope. And Jesus could look into your heart and say, Well, what about Bill the Blank? And each of us can go away disappointed. As the young ruler did. He went away because he had great wealth. The text tells us. And Jesus and the disciples are left there without him. And Jesus' quick comment is how difficult it will be for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it will be with those with a faithful spouse to enter the kingdom of God how difficult it will be for anybody who values anything here to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are shocked. Really, Lord? A wealthy guy that has got the ability to... He said he's kept the law and he can give all kinds of things away? You know, gee whiz. The woman that Jeff Bezos divorced gave away $167 billion to charity this last year. You're telling me that doesn't count towards inheriting eternal life? This is the disciples. For them, the sign of wealth is the sign of the Lord has blessed you so you can go out and you can do lots of good things. And that surely is worth something before the Lord, isn't it? Isn't it? The guy with a lot of good works, doesn't he have a clearer path to eternity? Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, all their philanthropy? Surely they could have an easier path than that dumb pig farmer. No. Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, well, who can be saved? By your own efforts? No one. They at least are beginning to realize that no one can be saved by your own efforts. And Jesus sums up the passage, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. No one can get to heaven by their own power, obedience, management, will, goodness, determination, whatever word you want to fill in there that you think you can do to get yourself to heaven. Peter, in his declaration after Pentecost, when he's asked by the crowds, he tells the people at Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified is risen from the dead. And the people go, ah, what can we do? Jesus, Peter's response is, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Repent and be born again. Turn from your vain efforts at being saved and be baptized. Drop into the water, save your debt and trespass in sin, and be raised again with Christ. Born again. Be saved. Or in Psalm 87, I ran across this in my readings this week. It says, this one was born there. In the city of God and the name is recorded God records your name when you're baptized just hang on to that there's nothing you can do theologian William Barclay in his closing comments on this passage sums it up so very well I think this is the last paragraph of the commentary he wrote on this particular passage the reaction of the disciples was that If what Jesus was saying was true, to be saved at all was known well nigh impossible. Then Jesus stated the whole doctrine of salvation in a nutshell. If, he said, salvation depended on a man's own efforts, it would be impossible for anyone. But salvation is the gift of God, for all things are possible for God. The man who trusts in himself and his possessions can never be saved. A man who trusts in the saving power and the redeeming love of God can enter freely into salvation. This is the thought that Jesus stated. This is the thought that Paul wrote letter after letter to prove. And this is the thought which is still for us also the very basis and foundation of the Christian faith. So says William Barclay and I agree full heartedly. I have a little postscript to add on to here. This is not dogma, but it's an observation which I hope is true. Mark in this gospel alone writes, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Only someone who actually had been looked at and seen Jesus love could write such a thing. Which is why I believe that it is Mark himself, the gospel writer, the companion of Peter who was this rich young man who came to realize what Jesus was trying to tell him all along. You cannot save yourself. That is my job. I am your salvation. I am salvation to all who believe. That's what Mark came to believe. Mark eventually was, according to tradition, the bishop in Alexandria. And when he died, his bones were interred in the Church there, and when Islam overran Egypt, his bones were transferred, and today he resides in St. Marco's Cathedral in Venice, Italy. St. Mark's Cathedral, if you will. That's not dogma, it's an opinion, but I think it's a pretty cool one. So, Jesus is our salvation, He alone is what we count on, and all of God's people said. Yeah